Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Ben Mergy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi. Oh, my goodness. Where are we? What are we doing? What are we doing? Uh, I was thinking about uh, restraint uh, built into every religious architecture are tools for restraint. The most obvious one that can come to anyone's mind is fasting. By fasting, you 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 have to stop the, the urge, the desire, the craving, all those things have to be brought into some sort of a container and then put to the side at least for 24 or five hours. Uh, and every major religion has uh, at its core these mechanisms that help us to not only appreciate what we take for granted by fasting, for instance, but also to teach us to do without, to not constantly give to our desire. And yet the culture we live in is one completely built on a a machine of desire. Advertising itself is all about desire. I know you've got a Lexus, but you really, if you were really you should have a Tesla and you shouldn't just have a Tesla. You should have like that, not the 30 K Tesla. No, my friend, you deserve the hundred K Tesla. That's the one you deserve. And I mean, you deserve it. So what it does is gives you this feeling of inadequacy on a perpetual basis. So we're never enough. I was speaking to a friend about this yesterday and he said that he, he has a friend and she had uh, invested in the pot business as, as pot was becoming a commercial thing. And she was up to $4 million in terms of what she'd invested was now up to $4 million. And she stayed with it because there was a chance this was going to get even better. And it just kept going down. You know, like when you're, really bad at playing poker and you have some money and then you lose a hand and lose another hand and think I can only lose another hand. And next thing you know, you got nothing. So she ended up with way less than $4 million. And he said to her, well, why didn't you get out at 4 million? Like that's a lot of money considering what your investment was. And she says, cause I kept thinking it could be eight. I could have 8 million. And now she doesn't have hardly anything. So this casino culture that we live in is one that is making the pandemic seem like a horrible irritant, this thing in our way. I mean, there are lots of positive things that are coming from us being together in our homes and being in our ourselves a little more and not running the distraction of, I got to get here, I got to get there, I got to do this, I got to do that. But still, there's this indignity that's been foisted upon us. How dare it tell me what to do? Governments are bad. People are, 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 are silly. They're overreacting. It's the flu. You know, these incredible pieces that just really make you wonder, are we really going to take great lessons out of this? Are we really going to do something with this information? Have we spent any of the time being present this was one of our best opportunities, perhaps in our lifetime, with, a dis- with distraction being much less than it has been before, to actually explore what it is to be here. It, take a walk. That's what it, we keep getting told. Don't go and congregate in places, but take a walk. 
walk in nature. Do we even find, you know, in, there were times in Toronto where I had to drive 45 minutes to find nature. And by the time I, f I found it, I was so irritated that I, I, I didn't care. I was just like, well, where's the parking? I can't find the parking. God's sake. But here we are in this moment that in about five months won't be the same anymore and we'll probably be able to walk around together. And yes, I really miss hugging people. I really miss being with people. I absolutely, spiritually, if spirituality is about relationship, then this is tough. Except I do have the luxury of family in my home. And I really do not take that for granted. Even when any of the four of us is extremely annoying in a specific day. Almost never, no, it's as much me as it's everybody. <laughs> it's the way it rolls. But we do have an, we do have a moment. And in that moment, we can find some stillness. And in that stillness, we can find our true self. I really believe that. I really believe that we can move away from the egoic nature of the struggle and the desire and the, and the distraction that is part of what we call the everyday life. And we can find ways to connect to the fact that there is underneath all this goalie equipment of ego, there is us, the true self that is connected to everything and everyone. I was reading something beautiful yesterday. I'm rereading uh, Alan Marinus's Everyday Holiness, which is a uh, a Musar guide and Musar is about, I guess the simplest way to talk about it is soul traits, sometimes character traits in Hebrew Midot. And these soul traits, humility, gratitude, compassion, order, there's a whole curriculum of how to spend a week with each one of these ideas in yourself with something you say to yourself during the beginning of a day about generosity. And then three things you can do in a day that are generous. Because there is that moment when you pass that homeless person where you think, uh, uh, no, I don't like their pitch. And you keep walking and then you think, uh, now I feel horrible and they feel horrible. And there's no dignity for anybody in that. But then if it's generosity, true spiritual generosity, who I'm not here as the judge. Whether your pitch is good or not, you're actually reduced to begging. Here's a toonie. I'm not going to follow you to see if you spent it on alcohol. I don't care. Here's a toonie. It's about giving it to you. not. And, and how are you going to spend that money? So generosity becomes a thing you do three times a day. And then at the end of the day, you write journal on it. Alan Marinus, who wrote this book, actually is going to be a guest of mine in January. And I'm really looking forward to that conversation because I think if we could develop that spiritual gym, that fitness program that religion often gives people, then we might actually be able to really have gleaned something from this besides it being something that got in the way of us doing the things we always do. So we'll see. As they say in the trade, Debarti, I have spoken. You as the audience say Shamati, and then we're good. Except people constantly forget to say Shamati or Debarti, so it's the way it is. My guest, uh, a dear heart, uh, someone who, uh, uh, one of the gifts of moving to Hamilton was to be in contact with her and her husband. Her husband's a rabbi, she's a cantor, and 
Uh, I love them both. They're wonderful people with generous hearts who do wonderful work. And when I said not that kind of rabbi, it's because the amount of grief that comes with running a, a, a synagogue and everybody's needs and wants and desires was something I don't think I can do. I'm not, I'm not a big enough heart for that, I don't think. But these two do it. So I figured I'd do one at a time. So uh, Cantor Paula Baruch is my guest here on Not That Kind of Rabbi. Hi, and thank you, and welcome. How are you? Shamati. Shamati. I heard your opening. It's so many interesting things. It made me think of um, when you said restraint, mm. that in in religion, do we have restraining orders? Could we, could we use them, that word, that way? In a kind way. <laughs> in a kind way. <laughs> right? The, the whole idea of, you know, the Sabbath. What, you know... I've always struggled with the amount of restraint required of a person. If you follow the laws, the halakhic laws of Sabbath. And yet I say to people, if the whole world did Sabbath, did Shabbat, if the whole world did it, we would reduce our greenhouse gas emissions per year by 7%. Just that alone, you know, don't turn on the lights. Don't drive the car. Don't, just stay away from all the stuff that we that constitutes our life. No fire starting. Now you're in the reform tradition yes. where a person can drive to the synagogue and, and start fires all the time. You can watch TV, yes. use your phone. So should do you ever get this feeling of what if we just really went for it and did 25 hours without these things? Well, so, so interesting. Like what level do you choose? And I think that's really the point is for each person, I'm not talking about a movement or a congregation, but for each person, what incremental change could you invite to maybe feel more Shabbatness, more at rest, more at peace, maybe more mindful and thoughtful for that so not, day, or maybe a moment in that day. Yeah. So not all or nothing. Right. But it how can't can be, you? Right? Well, yeah. for some people, it is all or I nothing. Guess, yeah. For the Orthodox, it is all or nothing. Yeah. Like if you're not doing it all, you're not doing it, right? And yeah. Well, but there's always been um, what a denomination or a rabbi um, preaches, let's say, mm-hmm. and what the members actually do. Right. Right. So the party line, the preaching, maybe you don't drive, but that might be mean for an individual at that in that environment. You know, they drive to a place where they won't be seen driving and then they walk. Right. Honestly, like I, yeah, I yeah. have friends that are Orthodox that would do that. Yeah, no, I have relatives who do that. <laughs> <laughs> Not even friends. Just like, Closer to home for you. Oh, look, it's my cousin and he's. <laughs> Well, he doesn't look that tired for a guy who lives as far as he lives from the synagogue. Uh, And yet I find myself interested in that. But I want to, can we start at the beginning for you? Uh, Which beginning? The beginning. The, the, how were you, what? Bray sheets. Your bray sheet. How, where were you, how were you brought up and how did you end up where you are? So. Oh my gosh. It's, uh, it's, it's a big Megillah. Ralph, I can yeah. make it short or no, we have a, it's a podcast. We yeah. Do I was going to say like when my husband, who's a rabbi tells stories, they're very long. Like he loves to tell the story of how we met. 
very long. When I tell it, it's like two sentences done, you know? So <laughs> I saw her, I fell in love, it was over. No, that's over. what you should say. Over. All right. So um, brought up where? Yeah, brought up in Tara, Ontario, T-A-R-A, which is a little hamlet, uh, eight miles west of Owen Sound, Ontario. So we had to go that far to get to town to go grocery shopping on a small farm that had been a pioneering farm in my family. So you can see, and you know my last name as Baruch. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Baruch, a farm girl? No, it can't be. So <laughs> growing up, and if, if you're an Owen Sounder or in Gray County, you remember when they used to have phone books, Ralph? Yes, I do. Like, yeah. And yellow pages for that. Yellow one. pages. So in the white pages, which were actually like, now you can't give that information, right? It's privacy, yeah. I guess, or something. Yeah. <laughs> As if books. we have that. Yeah. They yeah. were all there. And there were like three pages of the name Barfoot. So my birth name growing up was Barfoot. And it's a big pioneering farming clan that's uh, up in that area. And we were one of that... Uh, that clan were you were you united church or yes united church and and my mom and dad were very involved at the church my dad um i think of the my two parents very spiritual and a, and a spiritual seeker and that comes in a little bit later in the story um so he did a little bit of lay preaching when the minister was away you know and um and yeah it was quite a community it was a tiny little church on highway uh, 21 that goes to you know, between Own Sound and Sable Beach, we were just off that that highway, and uh, and I remember going to Sunday school, coloring pictures. You know, I was just recently I've been uh, really reconnecting with my sister on a deeper level. In my family, there are four four siblings. I'm the baby. Being the baby is awesome because other people, you know, your older siblings fulfill those expectations that the parents have, and by the time you are like the little last one, you're just cute and you can do almost whatever you want. So I feel really, really, um, what would we say? Um, young child privilege for sure. <laughs> I, I, I'm the youngest of four, so I'm with you. Oh, so you get it. We're in this totally get it. Boat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and the other thing about my siblings is that my mother left many years between us. She wanted each of us to have our own dedicated childhood. Hmm. I'm with her, which was amazing. Um, so I'm the youngest. My sister's six years older. My next brother's another six, five years. Wow. And then and then my oldest brother is 16 years older than me. So he kind of like feels parental now that my parents are no longer living. Right. Kind of interesting. Anyway, um, so growing up in, in this environment and at the little United Church, the little yellow church, which my dad helped to build. I remember that was part of the family story. Um, and our, on our farm concession, concession 11 in Derby Township, um, we would go every single Sunday, sometimes walk. And it was about a mile to walk to the church. And, you know, like, like it's like back in the olden days. <laughs> we had no mile. shoes. We had no <laughs> shoes. We walked in the snow. Exactly. Yeah. Now, so looking back, I think it's interesting that like, because I see United Church as like the reform movement of 
Christianity right. in a way, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I just had the uh, former moderator of the United Church, Marty Tyndall, on this show. Oh, and, interesting. Uh, I mean, when I used to do stand-up, I would ask people, you know, how were you brought up uh, to see what religion they were? And people, some people would just say in classic Christian dominant culture answer, oh, nothing. And I go, oh, United. <laughs> That's what that is, right? Get my guitar. <laughs> so here's the interesting story is each of my siblings, we had a very different childhood because of that age separation. And by the time um, I was coming of age, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I was really a spiritually leaning kid. Like I can remember lying on the lawn at the farm and looking up at a starry night and really pondering what is out there? What does this mean? I'm so small. It's so big. Where does it fit together? And Sunday, um, Sunday or Saturday mornings, I remember, um, you know, I used to cuddle with my dad while my mom made breakfast and he was the one I would ask all these deep questions and he'd love to talk about it as well. Well, little did I know, he was seeking in the direction of a fundamentalist faith, and he ended up grabbing onto that faith when I was about 10, 11 years old, and my parents ended up getting divorced over it. Wow. Yeah. So um, That's hard when um, in a relationship, when spiritual paths are, are not if, at least similar um, if not the same, it, it is hard, isn't it? Aren't you curious what he went for? Well, you said fundamentalist, but now you've got me really thinking <laughs> that he took a real, real hard turn. Uh, so was it was in Christianity? It was Jehovah's okay. Witness. Jehovah's ah, Witness. so interesting. So, like, uh, was there know, a like, community of Jehovah's Witnesses in Owen Sound? Like Chabad, they're everywhere, right? Yeah, 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 because they're missionary, they have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, everywhere. That's their whole raison d'etre. Do you remember what your reaction was to him sort of announcing his um, faith? I, what I remember was before he announced his faith, the shtick in our little country concession was, well, we had those party lines. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah. Like it would ring a certain way and that was your pickup. It would ring two longs and that was us. And a long and a short was the neighbor across and so on. But people would call you and say, Jehovah's Witnesses, are they're coming around, you know, they're coming down. <laughs> and everyone would pretend not to be home. <laughs> oh, no. That's what I remember. Trick or treat. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, that's community. We tell you when they're yeah, man-eating yeah. shark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so right. then my dad was one of these people. If I wanted to spend time with him, I'd be out having to go door to door with him. This must have been very confusing for you. You know, it's funny how resilient human beings are. Like, it kind of seemed normal. Hmm. You know, what was different was family celebrations drastically changed. So, you know, there was no Christmas anymore because they don't do Christmas. There was no birthdays because they don't do birthdays. Wow. In fact, interestingly to Judaism, the only thing that they celebrate, they have one celebration in the year, and it's Nisan 15. Passover day. Wow. Isn't that interesting? That's like they're. And, and do they acknowledge it as, as, as Passover? They call it Nissan. Maybe it's Fortnite. They, they live. They, but they, they, so they actually only acknowledge Passover. They don't call it Passover, but yeah. yeah the, what do they call it? The Passover. Nissan 14, I think they call it. Toyota 14. Who yes. Knows? Toyota. <laughs> 
All right. So, so you're now you're now in in your mother. I assume stays with the United Church. Yeah. Well, she she kind of like drifts away. Like she's, had she's not that spiritual. It's like this went bad. I'm just gonna yeah survive, right? Because she didn't have the ability to drive. She had to learn how to drive. Wow. She had to learn how to you know work. I mean, she got a job at the Wilco department store, and uh, and she, God love her. She made a life for her and me, you know, like because that's what was left by then, right? You and her, your siblings had all grown up, gone and on their own by then. So, um, so, so here's where things get interesting. I'm still got this spiritual yearning, but I'm not into what my dad's doing. And if I was ever into it, it's just to have a relationship with him. Right? Didn't satisfy me spiritually at all. In fact, it's so interesting when you look in the. Awake magazine, I think was their magazine. Yeah. And the yeah. Watchtower. They have Watchtower, yeah. Thing. And awake. One is kind of like easy listening, and one is like more. I can't remember <laughs> which which. I think the watchtower is more like awake is the easy listening version. And it's so it was like even when I was a child, I would read the articles in this because he would always be handing them to me, my dad. And they'd have like a little paragraph and questions at the bottom that you're supposed to answer the questions based on the paragraph you just read. Hmm. Do you follow? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so obvious and mundane and literally you were regurgitating right. what you read. So it's like, I don't know, we, like. Just making sure that you, you're you following the, or that you're the party line. Yeah, you remember, yeah. yeah. It's right? dogma. Like, it's, it, yeah. It's, but it, it's propaganda more than dogma. Totally. And yeah. it was just. I just never seen anything like it. You're right. I compared it to like, well, is this, you know, like communism? Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of people who believe that uh, religion is a regurgitation of propaganda. Yeah. Okay. You know, it, well, like yeah. It, if you start questioning, you know, in Hebrew school, there was always somebody who said something, right. usually me, uh, and it was not well received by the Hebrew school teacher. It was yeah. like, what are you challenging? Well, so, you know, and I do remember in Sunday school when I was young, asking a lot of questions and getting so frustrated when I saw contradictions. And there's plenty of contradictions. Now, the thing about Judaism that I love is that contradictions are welcome. Thank you very much. Right, we love right, them. Right. Well, paradox and unity are not foreign to each other, that there is in, in the unity yeah. of thinking, there is paradox. And you study in dyads, you argue with each other to you know, which is annoying when we're just standing in a supermarket with other Jewish people, but, you know, because then it's still an argument. <laughs> it's, true, it's true. But it's kind of, it, it gives you critical thinking. Yes. And, okay, and Now watch and, this serendipity. I'm living in Owen Sound with my mom now. I'm 12. I'm 13, 14, going through school. And I've, I, to my knowledge, I've never met a Jewish person. No consciousness that Jews even exist in the world. Nothing, just a blank slate. But I become interested in acting, and it really, it really, I feel looking back saves me because um, you know I've got all these kind of emotional walls from my experience, and here's a way to express emotion in a safe way because you're acting a part, right? Right. So it was a gift to me acting, and I got involved in our community's little theater and in my school plays and high school musicals and whatnot. 
the own sound little theater. They decide the year I'm 15, 15, to do the play, The Diary of Anne Frank. Oh, wow. I audition and I get the part of Anne Frank. Remember, I don't even know that Jews exist. I don't know anything about the Holocaust, like nothing. Nothing. So such a sheltered upbringing, really a dummy, you know, like totally nothing, not worldly. And I identify to- totally with the character of Anne Frank. What was it about her? About her, her, just her joy of life, her hope and her optimism. And she's going through a hard time. The Holocaust, very hard time. I'm going through a hard time. Fast forward, Ralph, I have to in that moment, because when I converted, I sat before a bait din. And Which the, is the, the judge, the three yeah, the judge three jury. rabbis or the three learned yeah. men, usually, who yeah. are, um, are giving you entry or checking out your sincerity to be Jewish. And this little um little old jewish guy like so old i couldn't believe he still was there and he says so fala tell me why do you want to be jewish and what makes you feel akin to the jewish people and and i said well i've had these like this this painful upbringing like i've had this pain in my life and so i identified with anne frank and the pain and he lost it on me how dare you compare your <laughs> right your your small <laughs> your small terra so, pain to exactly right but to anything it, we've done yes yeah, yeah. and um, that was an interesting wake up for me because I both appreciated the audacity of comparing my little individual pain to the Holocaust which Anne Frank symbolized like for me she was a person who went through these particular experiences but. You have to extrapolate yeah. it. And um, and also the understanding that you can't measure someone's pain and someone's strife. It really is equal. You know, we all have suffering. We all have pain. There's no point in the measurement. Right. There's the point of connecting. That's, you know, and, a and, and, and personal pain uh, can't be gaslit. And when it is, it, it becomes uh, a shameful piece. Oh, I don't deserve to feel that my father, who I was so close to, that I would snuggle with and talk about spirituality, has become a stranger in my life. I'm supposed to pretend that's okay. That's mm-hmm. nothing. Well, it wasn't nothing. It was my universe. And now my was, universe is Gornish. different. I was thinking of that. Look who thinks he's Gornish. <laughs> you know, when you were talking about Musar and the... You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, <laughs> Well, your husband and I have a good laugh about that once in a while. Oh, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> so um, that Zimmerman, began he's on the floor. Yeah. That began yeah. my identification. Okay, now wait a minute now. Okay. So Diary of Anne Frank becomes the point where you, for the first time, even understand the Jewish experience. Now, I can relate to the people who've never met a Jew being the Jew people have never met. You know, a <laughs> University of Alberta in Edmonton, I was bumping into all kinds of people who were in university already and had never met someone Jewish. And of course, being Jewish, I would end up with, do you like my horns and all this other stuff? Because, you know, you're so like surprised as this person saying, 
I've never met a Jewish person. He's like, wow, really? Well, here I am. <laughs> so anyway, so you you get that, 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 and that becomes the beginning of a deeper inquiry, or it's the first flash and you move on? It does seem, you know, it seems like the kind of thing where when you learn a new word, there should be a word for it. When you learn a new word and then suddenly you see it everywhere. Right. right. This awakening to Jews and Judaism. And, um, and I kept stumbling upon it over and over again. I was I finished high school and I went to, um, I went to York University for the BFA program. Well, 60% at that time, this is 1979, were Jewish. Like right. on my floor, everybody was Jewish except for my roommate who was Iranian, the last one out and got her stamp by the way, while the Canadian embassy was holding well, on to the- Well, Ken Taylor was holding on to Americans, yes. right. Yeah. Wow, okay, so you've got one Iranian uh, and a lot of Jewish people. And, 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 and you're in show business. And I'm, yes, I'm in show business. Right. Um, and I'm just soaking it up and I'm learning Hebrew for the first time. And the first Hebrew word I learned was Baruch. Because it's the beginning of every blessing. It's the beginning of every blessing. Exactly. So I took my name Barfoot and I kept the bar of Barfoot. And I changed my last name. This is years down the line. I changed my last name to the first Hebrew word I learned, Baruch. So it's an This, this is when you got co converted, though. Not, yeah. So you, I'm at You didn't change it then. Right. Um, I drop out after first year. Hey. I drop out and I run away to Israel. Wow. Some of my friends that I've made, they're going back to Israel. And I think kibbutz sounds so cool. I have to see that. I'm like an old hippie at heart, right? Right. So like just born, you know, a decade late. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with Only you. Only me, right. There's, I used to read Jerry Rubin's Do It. And I'd, I'd say to people, I would do it. I, I just don't know how you do it. Just where <laughs> do you go to do it? What is it? Right. What because it? my brothers were old enough for it, but I wasn't. Right. Yeah. I know. What well, you know, when you're the youngest though, right? You kind of have you kind of adopt the older generation stuff and music and stuff. I guess well, I guess so. My sister was three years older and she'd bring home, you know, Jimi Hendrix, are you experienced and you know, uh, sticky fingers, and I'd just be like, Wow, this is like I'm hip because of my sister. This is cool. I know it is cool. All right, my so you you go to Israel. When you get to Israel, you do you take this sort of immersive Jewish bath at that point? You start to feel like okay, like is there something that makes you think? For some people who end up converting to Judaism, there is this feeling that they've their soul has been Jewish at one point or another. For other people. It's this, this, they can't explain it, but it's a constant attraction to things within this, the culture, if not the religion, that make them feel that there's a simpatico between them and, and that religion. What was, what was the resonant note that was hitting you about being Jewish? It's interesting, those, the two aspects you mentioned, because I would say all of the above, all mm. of the above. When I arrived in Israel, I was just smitten with the story of Israel, with the experience of being there, with the, well, you know, when you when you go from Canada to Israel, yeah. it's like the adrenaline yeah. is up here instead of, you know, here. Yeah. So you're living at you're living a higher pace, a higher consciousness, it feels like. Yeah. And 
you know, and. Um, but you see, in my case, it's because one of the major pieces for me is that for the first time I am walking around as a Jew in what is now I'm the dominant culture. Yes. Right. So when I used to do the stand up bit and say, oh, people would say nothing. They said nothing because they didn't have to do anything to be Christian in an overwhelmingly Christian country. And Jews in in Israel are secular often because I don't have to make a deal out of the fact that it's uh, the holiest day of the year. The highways, I could drive a tricycle down the highway and not hit somebody. It's it's Yom Kippur and that's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, every uh, government office has a mezuzah, a blessing scroll on the door. Door. Um, the names of the streets. They're like everything. prophets. And I mean, it's right. So you're 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 in the milieu. So, but for you, you're still coming into the the flow of all this. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So I would say that um, as obnoxious as it may sound, <laughs> I felt I was Jewish already. I'm Anne Frank, for goodness sake. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> so you're going to get that baked in guy after you again. Yeah, I know. That was quite a shock, right? <laughs> you're what? Yeah. What? But so what's really interesting is um, I was there for, I was in Israel for two years. Uh, by the ninth month of my time there, I started in a conversion program, which I only heard about. Back up a little bit, because it was interesting that I was going to go to kibbutz, if you remember. Yes. I heard you go to kibbutz, they'll teach you Hebrew, you know, it's going to be great. You know, I'm a farm girl, that could be cool, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then um, there was a job open at a company called Kenes, K-E-N-E-S. They're a tour, big tour company at the time, and they organized international conventions, academic conventions. Right. And uh, and one of the organizers, Edna Peled, she wanted a... Um, an assistant, like a secretarial assistant. And so I, I got the job because I could type and speak English, I guess. I don't know. It was reasonably, you know, could put words together. And uh, it was a fantastic job because I got to tour all over Israel, you know, be in all the hotels, registering people and just really fun staff. And there was, um, there was a woman who uh, worked in the communications office and she would get the teletypes and she would like get all the information coming in from different scholars for different conventions and, and tours and such. And she was from Holland. Her, her husband was Jewish, Israeli, and they'd married in Cyprus because they yes. couldn't get married in Israel. Very common. Now they're living in Israel. Their marriage is not recognized there at that time. And she want they want to have kids so she wants she has to convert to get married to him convert orthodox convert well that's all there was there was nothing else just for people listening if you're not a convert uh, uh, an orthodox convert you're not recognized legitimately as being jewish so if you're from the reformer conservative movement or the renewal movement uh, and you want to get married even if you're both jewish um, and one of you had a mother who was a convert for Reform Synagogue. I, in my uh, my Israel documentary, I talked to a couple. The husband is Moroccan, uh, so he's fine. He's you know many generations. But his his the, the woman he wants to marry, her mother had converted in England Reform, so she was no longer legitimate, even though she had grown up in Israel, served in the army, uh, and was working uh, as an Israeli. They had to go to Cyprus. 
to get married and then come back as a married, uh, a legally married couple, but not uh, not recognized by the state. So that kind of nonsense goes on to this day. Sorry, I just needed to clarify that. For I was, um, yeah, thank you for that. I was um, interested, intrigued by the fact that she was going through, she actually, she had to like get her own apartment. They couldn't live together during this either because they yeah, had- of course, to, you're not supposed to. Was Meshuggahna, as we say, it's a little crazy. <laughs> And so I joined her conversion class. I met with the rabbi that was was doing her class. And um, we would go for classes twice a week. And the funny thing is, Ralph, anyone who knows me well knows that I'm not the best in the kitchen. I'm not the balabusta, not the cook. You know, my hubby does all the cooking. He's amazing at it. I He says like, you know, you're going to have to die first because if I die first, you're going to starve. <laughs> or I'm going to do takeout, tell him. You know. I'll get takeout. I'll yeah. get takeout. You're not that important. I can you're get takeout. not that important. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it was all cooking, Ralph. They had really? a model kitchen and 90% of what we did. Wow. How amazingly sexist. Unbelievable, right? Wow. How insulting. And odd that I stuck it out yeah it just that's very interesting yeah very strange I mean were you gathering spiritual strings here at the same time or was this just sort of a an acculturation a sort of an absorb an osmosis where you didn't even really notice the how much you were getting drawn in at that point I I mean I I didn't think about spirituality. I thought about identity. Right. And I felt such a strong identity that I wanted to confirm the identity. And that was the driving force for me. Right. And so I guess that can be spiritual in a way. Like we have different motivators and drivers at different times, different engines working. Right. right. But you weren't, you weren't going, uh, I'm going to explore Judaism through the lens of, Heschel, or I'm going to explore no, through the lens of it, learn no it in that. any way. So, I mean, it's interesting. So, I was 22 at that time, and I'm going to turn 60 in April coming up. That's a lot. That's so that's way longer than I've been Jewish than I have not. Yeah, been that's interesting. At this point. And it's kind of mind boggling that I work as Jewish clergy now. Is it? I wonder sometimes because I see you up there. I see you up there on the bima and uh, doing a service, and you know, uh, capturing this the soulfulness of what Judaism is about. And you're, you have the most lovely singing voice, but you're also in, totally present to what's going on up there. Your husband, no less, is the rabbi standing beside you, which makes it even more of an energy level piece. And then I wonder to myself, like Christmas. Does Christmas literally ring any bells for you at this point in your life? Um, so tonight yeah. at, at seven, we're having a barefoot holiday family time, which I've organized because hmm. we've just kind of not been keeping in touch very well. And that's because, you know, my siblings and their and my nieces and my nephews, they'll be celebrating Christmas pandemically. Right. Zooming so I said, let's have a Zoom gathering for that. And usually, sometimes, not every year, but I would go and gather with 
a part, a barfoot type party on Christmas Eve or something like that, just to be with my family. Right. Mm -hmm. And my daughter and I both love music. Well, all my kids love music, but um, my daughter and I, when we're driving to that party, because she and I are the stalwarts, we like to go to that party. And, you know, my husband doesn't like to go. The boys don't really like to go. So it's usually Rebecca and I were driving to Kitchener where they live. Sorry, I wasn't clear. And we listened. That's the night we listened to all the Christmas music on the radio. Mm. And that's sufficient. <laughs> right. But it's there. It's in you, too. It's, it's memory, right? It's memory. Yeah. And Christmas, you know, I, I've... Uh, my first wife was a convert. Mm -hmm. So we did Christmas because her mother seriously was never going to be a convert. And uh, she was English and there was a way of doing Christmas and she did it. Um, uh, and I was a bit of a Scrooge about it, you know? You were? You were? Yeah, I wasn't, I, I didn't embrace it. I would be like, we never had a tree in the no. house. But you know, on the other hand, I'm thinking, well, where's my, and even though my wife had converted, it's like, I, I, you know, this was still her mother and it was still her family or sisters. And, and I said, you know, I, I, we tried a tree one year and I just thought, Doesn't this feel feels right. kind of weird to me, like just weird. So she said, okay, we don't have to do this anymore. And I, in retrospect now, I think to myself, you know, did you really need to be like that? Or could you have just embraced, you know, I really believe in deep ecumenism. I believe mm -hmm. in, in a multi-faith thing and not just, you know, by visiting that stuff. But, you know, like Reb Zalman says, how do you get it on with God? And this is a way that people get it on with God. <laughs> so, so why not just, you know, celebrate that with them? It doesn't, it's not the cooties, you know, nothing bad's going to happen to me, but. Well, you know, it, may I interrupt? I'm sorry. Of course, please do. Um, you know, being a spiritual seeker and like, I really took that seriously and, and examined different paths especially when I, especially when I learned more about Jewish spirituality, Kabbalah and mysticism and Heschel, as you said before, and different theologians in Judaism. Um, I also made me, and getting involved in spiritual direction, which I know you also have been uh, on that path as well. We're, we're both spiritual directors. Hey, yes. it, um, it made me look at, and you do read sources when you're studying spiritual direction from Catholicism, especially the Jesuits were very foundational in, in, in that methodology. Absolutely. So uh, what I, where I landed at, because I was at that place too, where, yeah, why don't you just like take this and this from these different traditions and right. whatever sparking you, you know, it's great. But my vision of my own path, because it's just my vision is there's kind of this, let's say mountain, let's say there's elevation, right? And so there's some kind of yearning, we seek to get more knowledge or more oneness there. And there are, you know, they say many paths up the mountain, many different spiritual paths you can take. But if you're jumping around from path to path, I'm not sure you're gonna get further ahead. Oh, no, I look, uh, I've struggled with this over the years. Of, right, me too. Uh, me too. There's such a thing as spiritual materialism, where really, right. 
it just becomes, you know, more fun to never commit to any particular path, but without the rigor of that path, there are depths or heights you will never achieve. And I get that totally, but that doesn't mean that I can't. So with my friend, Marty uh, Tyndall, who I spoke about earlier, you know, my question was, look, I, I had a disrespectful relationship with Jesus Christ growing up. It was a, a snarky little joke. Oh, you know, come on. He's just, a, he's just a Jewish mm -hmm. rabbi. He's not, you know, nice guy, but the son of God, you know, that kind of stuff, right? A, a way of diminishing it and, and, and discounting it. And I, I was never comfortable with that as I got older. And I just thought, who am I to start denigrating other people's path to the same mm -hmm. thing? Um, it, it, who am I to denigrate uh, uh, Muhammad uh, ascending to heaven, blessed be his name, uh, mm -hmm. on a winged horse? Oh, what All do you powerful stuff, right? Yeah, well, okay, we'll try reading the Torah for 45 minutes and you'll see enough stuff to make you go, what on earth are they talking about? This is nuts. Yeah. Because to me, it's it's all metaphor. It's all poetry. It's all an internal journey. Pharaoh isn't a guy. He's not your Brenner, <laughs> right? Pharaoh, Although he made a very good. Even very good one. And he was Jewish. No, Pharaoh um, is internal. It's our own tyrant that runs our life in the, into the directions we don't need. And God, to me, is, is not a noun. It's a verb. It's a unifying action of creation so that I can share that with everybody. And I can learn from everybody else the beautiful wisdoms that they have. You know, Matthew Fox is a wonderful proponent of a multi-faith way of being a spiritual being, mm -hmm. right? With ritual and, and the things that ground you. Uh, so for me, I, I tend to feel like it's one thing to visit other faiths, you know, kind of do some spiritual tourism. Mm -hmm. It's another thing to go, what is it like to really appreciate that, as Marty told me, Jesus Christ is not what is on his license, his driver's license. Jesus is the human manifestation of the divine. Christ is a cosmic consciousness. They're two different pieces of the same thing. So by doing that, I actually gain more knowledge of what it is to be Jewish, not less. Absolutely. Yes. Right? Yes. Sorry, I was ranting. No, it's... So let me ask you then, as oh. you then evolve, it's one thing to convert to Judaism. It's another thing to become a full-blown clergy who can lead services, who who reads, you know, uh, Jewish literature, who who helps people through births and deaths and marriages and bar mitzvahs. What made you want to go that far? That is a great question. And, and I think we all as individuals have certain gifts, talents, things we're good at, things we're not good at. Mm -hmm. And, um, this role just kind of kept emerging as something that satisfied. Um, okay. I don't want to, I don't want to, <laughs> it sounds terrible to go back to acting and say, no, you know, no. Good at acting. It was good at performing. And this is, it takes some of those skills, of the presence, the grace, the expression, but putting that together with authenticity and spiritual meaning and the listening and the vessel that you make for others who are seeking and want to connect and, and want their spirits raised or their questions answered um, or just to 
bubble and look at what prayer might be in there for them. I think those were my talents all led me in that direction. Right. And thank God. Right. I feel what I do is really meaningful, you know, for me and, and, um, Sometimes others tell me that they find what I do moving and helpful and, and, um, you know, nurturing and educational and spiritually um, enlivening for them. So that's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful role um, to be able to play in people's lives for sure. Beautifully put the, the voice you know, uh, we did a, a welcome to Hamilton for Syrian refugees when I first came, moved to Hamilton about four and a half years ago, five years ago. When, and um, we were at uh, New Vision Church on Maine. And that's where they, you know, there was the National played and Drew Hayden. All these people played and Max Kerman. And it was all fun. It was great. Tons of energy. Yeah, lots of people, you know, giving money. Uh, it, it was really good. At Tarek, uh, what uh, I have, Ralph. The Arkells, perfect. The Arkells Campfire Chords book. Perfect. Oh, yeah. So nice. we're leaving near the end of the night, and the the uh, the man, the clergy who runs that church, the the priest who runs that church, is, is, is saying goodbye, and he said, "Wow, I'd love to see that many people in my church on a regular basis," and I said, "Tonight was church." And he, we kind of looked at each other and I said, you know, a U2 concert for some people is church, right? They, they're waving their phone in the air. It used to be a Bic lighter. Now they're waving their phone mm -hmm. in the air. But, you know, they're in countries where they don't even speak English and they're, and they're going, and I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Because <laughs> they're all in it together. And there's, right. something about, there's something about the song that for for my experience of it and when I look around at people we are able to lose ourselves and our rationality and our brain defense of what we believe and don't believe and who we like and who we don't and we're just together I just posted a thing on on, on my not that kind of rabbi Facebook page of Muslims Christians and Jews from two years ago in Jerusalem in the old city singing together the Kulam group the choir oh choir choir God. of Jerusalem and amazing I, and i i literally found myself crying i was yeah, crying because i just thought you know it, it the point isn't just to be of one team or another it's the point of coming together through the specifics that we need to get there and as you said i mean so my ministry is musical right and um as a cantor, I am leading the musical part of worship and, um, and delving into that and studying that. And, and, um, and that's a really interesting thing for our community because I, um, before I was their cantor, um, I think they were used to singing the same melody for the prayers like over and over again. Right. And they were very resistant to learning any new melodies. And I am the kind of person that needs to change and grow it all the time. So there was a bit of a misbalance there. Mm -hmm. I had to be patient and not change too much. And they learned to appreciate that 
if I bring new music, it's going to be thoughtful and it's going to give them something new and they are open to learning and appreciating. Well, there's the tension of, of, of that, right? But have you ever encountered uh, when people disagree with what you're doing with something in Judaism, <clears throat> an undercurrent of you're a convert? Never. Um, I think when I was early, in, as a convert when I earlier, um, mm. um, I came back to Canada. I went to University of Guelph to finish up my degree. And uh, at that time, Edmund Lipschitz was the head of the, uh, what did they call it then? The Canadian Jewish Council. The uh, Jewish, Canadian Jewish Congress? Yes, Canadian yes. Jewish Congress. And uh, we, they used to do, they had uh, clubs in all the universities. And right. I was the president at Guelph. It was so chutzpahdik, right? This <laughs> contact, she's converted. And my name was still Barfoot when I came back. And, um, and, he, and he did the Jewish geography thing to me. Mm-hmm. I was at a meeting and he goes, Paula Barfoot, Paula Barfoot is Jewish. And, uh, and I had to tell him my conversion story. And the next month, I started the process for changing my name. And it was he, to avoid that. <laughs> so sure. he was trying to shame you. Oh, I don't, I don't want to put that harsh. I well, think he was curious. Yeah. I, I, would, <laughs> I would have come back with, well, lip shits. Your lip shits my ass talks. And then I just would have oh left the room. <laughs> oh, no. Oliver Shalom, he really was a lovely man. I didn't <laughs> shed any shade there. He was so here's, here's another interesting piece for a clergy. The, we'll, we'll, we'll go to uh, Carl Jung for this one uh, in that the people have a shadow side. Everyone has a shadow. But clergy are not allowed to show that shadow. So we're never, you know, you're not allowed to, if you are in the spiritual business, um, the caricature is of always having a life that's glowing with light. How do you console yourself to the tensions of being a human being who has ups and downs and goods and bads and lights and darks and being a clergy leader? So first of all, I'm so lucky that I'm part of a clergy couple. Because my husband has been a rabbi, you know, for so, so many years. And I come to this role more recently that I studied to be a cantor. Now, um, so he kind of takes that exemplary, spiritual exemplary role, uh, you know, and he's, he's, he's got to be comfortable with that role. Mm-hmm. And that allows me in the same congregation to be a little bit more um, dual, to Not show sure. a bit more, um, um, you know, questioning or doubt or the other side of things. Yeah. But you're also the, the by his own admission, the one who is the connector to, uh, heart to heart with so many people. I guess. And yeah, but you maybe bring that's that energy. Less because I'm a spiritual exemplar and mm-hmm. more because they maybe see me as more real. Right, and and maybe a little more extroverted. Well, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to him in another episode. Um, he was so jealous. Was he? But you asked me first. He goes, I don't understand. Like, 
Well, we go for said, maybe he doesn't want to talk to you. Like maybe. No, I, 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 actually, I, I <laughs> want to have him. I have. I want to have him and Rabbi Ed. Uh, Ed Elkin. Oh my gosh! Who, who was my uh, rabbi for twenty years in Toronto? And they went to school together. I They're know. That's. I want to have them on together. It'll be crazy. That'll be so interesting. You yeah. know, they did a year in Israel together. Yeah. Fascinating. The whatever institute. What's it called? <laughs> what, what's the name of that? HUC. Yeah, Hebrew College, know. whatever. No, no, there, there was a whole other Hartman Institute. Did he do? Oh, yeah, they, yeah, that's yeah. Later in a rabbi's life, you go to Hartman. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And they get Ed went. He had a great time. Um, where do you see your spirituality growing these mm -hmm. days? Where's it going? Wow, that is so interesting. I feel like. I feel like I'm on the cusp of a change and I'm just kind of trying to figure out where that is. Hmm. It's something to do. It's definitely something to do with aging. Hmm. It's definitely something to do with, I keep thinking about legacy for some reason. Well, like, what do we be behind? You know, what can I do that's going to have an impact, you know, longer than my mourners remember that I was alive. Right. So I don't know, like that's very egotistical as well. And I don't, I don't, but I don't experience it as ego. It's just kind of a, a bubbling, an urge, a something like I need to give something. What will it be? Right. Well, you mentioned in April, you'll be 60, right? Yes. So that's, that's important, right? That, that's an important. It's getting to be, and it's just so interesting how different things awaken in you at different times. You know, in, in, in the, uh, the workshops I do, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I do a modification of the idea of the vidui, the, the reckoning, as it were, uh, that is really simpler than that. And it's, uh, you know, who have you loved and uh, who, have, who has loved you back? You know, that's important. Mm -hmm. um, what are you most proud of? Now, not, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years from now. Now, what are you most proud of? And then what do you regret? And when someone says, I don't have any regrets. Oh, I my goodness. How could you not have heaps of regrets? <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> uh, I have to take them into a side room at that point. Yes, go, okay, can we have a conversation here? Can we define regret? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then the last one is, uh, what do you want to be remembered for? Mm. Right? And it's yeah. part of that harvesting of our wisdom to do this work. And it, it, it does lead us away from the path that has gotten us to where we were, which was ego. Ego was what we needed to push through these different things. Um, and now it's an exploration of true self, you know, so you find people who say, you know, I, I used to play the guitar when I was a kid. And then I stopped because I thought, this is not, this is not for a grown up person, I got to go make a living. Uh, or I used to paint or, you know, those are some of the simpler uh, examples, but then they come back to it at, at 60. They come well, that's back so to interesting because I went out and I on Kijiji bought a flute because in high school I played a flute and I haven't had one for all these years. And I want to know, do I, do I remember? What does it feel like? And it was, yeah. it's just so funny that the instincts that you're talking about are so real. Right. Because Really, what we're on the journey for in autumn for a lot of people is a journey back to self. Mm -hmm. 
and not to the representation we've given to people so that we could make a living so that we could raise a family so that we could you know go into the bank officer for the mortgage and have them take us seriously right and you know not have a tattoo on our head that says you know press here for more beer nuts you know <laughs> ralph do you find this like i i find in my spiritual development um you talk about wisdom I feel dumber and dumber, <laughs> dumber and dumber. Like the, like I know less and less. Well, I think that's humility. I think that's grace and humility. Look who thinks they're garnished. Right. So I think it's, I think it is our, hum, it, when we allow for our humility, then we allow for this not being about certainty. You know, people, I think, misrepresent the idea of faith as certainty. And it's not, it's a method of exploration. It's a trust exercise mm -hmm. and it ebbs and flows. It has its good and its moments and its bad moments. But I, I do think that what we stop trying to do is be right. And what we look for is better questions. <laughs> I love that. I love that. So to me, that's the spiritual journey is, mm -hmm. is to be able to say, I can now ask these questions from a place of knowing that life is as... Um, Stephen Jenkinson says in Die Wise, the human lifespan is not life. It is just the moment we have in this incarnation in the mm -hmm. flow of ever, ever present life. To We've me, had a lot of funerals lately, you know. Yeah, I bet. Endemically. And um, funerals are just such an interesting part of what we do. Like you see people and you comfort them at the most challenging time. And you're kind of, the person that's kind of explaining and accompanying them on this understanding of the spirit, what happens with the soul, you know, honestly, we don't know. So we sense you... that there's something bigger and, and we may have all had different experiences of maybe we've, I, I was with my mom when she died mm -hmm. and there was a palpable feeling of this whooshing I don't want to say light, but if I was going to translate it into something visual, I would say light. But energy, if nothing else. Yeah. And yeah. this waxy, nothing body left. Right. Ramdas talks about that. It's a spacesuit <laughs> with your name on it. I've, I've spoken about it on this program. Mm. You know, it, it's there. I was reading something recently about the idea that you don't have a soul. You are a soul. Right. Like in, in your entirety, you are a soul, not my soul tells me this. And that really has me thinking. And that's what I love about good questions, right? So um, the Diamond Sutra of Buddhism, that says that, that this piece of paper is made of fibers that are made of wood, that is made of a tree that grew in a forest that is on a planet in a solar system, in a galaxy of... 500 million minimum 500 million galaxies so this the energy the stardust in this and the stardust in me and the unification of those two things is, is what i worry about sometimes I'll, I'll torture your husband more with this when when we talk but what what i worry about is that religion sometimes gets reduced to for many people particularly in their learning as children uh, a series of fairy tales that are 
not rational, so therefore not worth considering as we grow older, because what grown up believes that you hit a rock and, you know, water comes out of it or blood comes out of it. What? What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Right. But if I hit the rock of my existence, you know, at the right time in the right moment, then the flow of water is the energy of my life. So it all depends how you take it. Right. So I, 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 when I hear the music, it, 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 it does a different thing to me. I was listening to Bacha Levine, uh, a young singer from uh, uh, the Piers, Brooklyn. Um, and in the Sephardic, in Moroccan tradition, my tradition, there are no such thing as nigunim, uh, wordless melodies. Uh, it's all and, about the words. Right. But it's also, you know, it, it, it's in an Arabic tilt, right? I mean, the way we, the way we do what we do when we sing is almost indistinguishable from what a Muslim would do with their singing because we're, we're Arab Jews. That's what we do. But she had this wonderful riff in her Karov, which was, and I just, you can just hear the yearning in that, right? Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's, that's what can transcend for the, so people say to me, you know, I'm singing in, in Hebrew. I don't even know what I'm singing. I don't know enough Hebrew to know. And I go, who cares? Yeah, it does not matter. It's not rational. <laughs> it does not matter. This is, a, this is, we should all get together and sing a voodoo language together that puts us in a room where we're not going, you said that word wrong. <laughs> exactly. Right? What do you really mean by that? Who cares? You're now, you know. You know who's very powerful at, um, the melody and and having people join is Joey Weisenberg. Oh yeah, lovely stuff. Incredible. And he does, you know, half of what he does is like blues Americana and Jewish, you know, Yiddishkeit, mm -hmm. which is very interesting. Yeah. So you're going to be sixty. I am. You're exploring yourself in different ways. You're wondering about legacy. This is going to be a very interesting time for you, I think. So I think so. Yeah. We have to stop, which is, an, well, we'll end up talking because, heck, we know each other. Um, um, tell the rabbi. Not to in, worry. Not to worry. <laughs> it's it's me and him and maybe Ed, and we'll see if I can cook oh, that up. That'll be so fun. That would be fun. So fun. I want to thank you. I want to bless you. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, when you're uh, barfooting uh, the Christmas carols, enjoy every single one of them because for me if i don't watch alistair sims a christmas carol on christmas eve it ain't christmas awesome <laughs> right and it's a wonderful life on christmas day or it ain't christmas right right so <laughs> i i can still dig the holiday uh, well, and thank you for everything you do as a spiritual leader it's it's a wonderful thing to know you and to and to see you animate the the what could be turgid text into just lovely, lovely feeling, lovely feeling. Well, people. I feel so blessed to have you in our community, Ralph, and and to be a friend. It's an honor. Cantor Paula Baruch, been my guest on Not That Kind of Rabbi. I'm Ralph Ben Mergi. Uh, if you want, go to my Facebook page, Not That Kind of Rabbi, and, you know, send me some comments. If you're interested in spiritual direction, spiritual counseling, I do take uh, uh, people on as a spiritual counselor. And to do that, just go to my email. That's the simplest thing to do. Um, Ralph Ben Mergi, just 
Google that and you'll see the spelling. It's a little difficult for people because it's Spanish grammar. But Ralph Ben one word at gmail.com. Uh, just got a new inquiry today. So uh, it doesn't matter what faith you are or what faithless you are. As Reb Zalman used to say, when people come in for spiritual counseling and go, look, let's get this straight. I don't believe in God. And Reb Zalman's answer was, well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And that always worked because then you realize they're talking about Santa Claus which is an entirely different guy. The fact that it's a guy is an entirely different idea. Uh, thank you for listening to the program and uh, you take care of each other and be well and be safe. And, and Cantor Paula, thank you very much for doing this with me.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.